It's Something for Nothing, the Rush fan cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we're going back to the 70s today, aren't we? We sure are, in a big way. In a good way. In a good way? Yeah, the 70s were not good. <laughs> but this is a fun topic. <laughs> it is a fun topic. You and I lived through the 70s. The 70s were not, they weren't the best. You know what I was thinking? You know, we've lived about 50 years, right? About, yes. Have we lived in the greatest 50 years in the history of the world, possibly? Because <laughs> it's all going downhill from here, right? Uh, I don't know, man. It's always been going downhill. It's been going uphill and downhill at the same time. Various aspects of society go uphill while other aspects go downhill. Hundreds of years from now, when they look back, they're going to say 1970 to 2020 was the greatest 50 years in the world. You know, I'm not a historian, Steve, so I can't really answer that question. <laughs> it's possible, though, right? Anything's possible with faith in the Lord, Steve. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe, rate us, like us, give us a review on your favorite podcast app. The base intro and outro, that is Lex. Jerry, I hope you have an email to get us on a different tangent here. I do. And this is about Victor. Oh, nice. This is from Darren. He says, hello, Jerry and Steve. Here are some Victor tidbits in relationship to Rush. Oh, nice. I, Mother Earth vocalist Edwin, was the support act for Rush on the last date of the Counterparts Tour. Did we mention that? We did not. Okay. Thank you for that. Drummer Blake Manning and guitarist Bill Bell have both performed with Tom Cochran. Alex guessed it on Tom Cochran's 1995 album, Ragged Ass Road. Tom Cochran and Red Ryder opened some Canadian dates for Rush on the Grace Under Pressure Tour. Bassist Jeff Jones from Red Ryder was the first bassist in Rush before being replaced by Getty Lee. Get out. No, I'm still here. I'm... No, I said get out. <laughs> <laughs> Canadian recording artist, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Dalbello, known as Lisa Dalbello, has a 1981 song titled just Like You, which features a great electric violin solo by Ben Mink. Oh, wow. Bassist Peter Cardinelli is a session musician who runs a record label in Canada called Alma Records. Peter was a member of the Dexters, who were the former house band at Alex Lyson's former nightclub, The Orbit Room in Toronto. Wow. And Sebastian Bach was initially going to be the vocalist on Victor, but it didn't materialize. Wow. Sebastian discusses this below, and then he gives a link to a YouTube video, which I watched. But if you go to YouTube and search for Sebastian Bach at home and social, that's the name of the channel at home and social, right? or that's, that's the name of the, the show he was on at home and social around 13 minutes. You can hear all about it. It's very interesting. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. Can you imagine? You think we would have done our research? You would think, but why start now? <laughs> So Sebastian was going to sing on the entire record. He was going to sing every song, I guess, other than the, maybe the two ones that Alex, you know, the spoken word things that Alex did, but he was going to sing on the rest of the record. And it would have been great, I think, if he sung on the record, don't you think? Yeah. It's a funny story, so I won't tell it here. I wouldn't want to ruin it for you. Oh, no. And the other thing I found out, I think we mispronounced Dalbello's name. I think I might have called her Dabello instead of Dalbello. Oh, did you? I didn't pick up on that. I may have. I may have. A listener named Adam reached out to me and told me 
that she wrote the song Gonna Get Close to You, which was later covered by Queensryche. Really? You remember that song? I do. That was a Dalbello song. It was a cover of a Dalbello song. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, there's another tidbit. Right. We're winning someone's rock and roll trivia night right here. <laughs> so more trivia, Jar. We've got a really great conversation today about eight-track tapes. I know, the much loathed, yet still somehow appreciated eight-track tape. Yep. We've got the author of the new book, Unspooled, An Adventure in Eight-Tracks. He's also the man behind Tim's Vinyl Confessions on YouTube. Look for his YouTube channel. You can find him on Twitter, at Tim's Vinyl, on Instagram, at Tim's Vinyl Confessions. Tim Durling, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thanks, guys. It is a pleasure to be on here. I've uh, been listening for a long, long time, so it's a pleasure to finally be on. Well, thanks so much for that. And you know what we're going to ask, Tim? What is your Rush origin story? When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Well, uh, so I was born in 74. I like to say I came out the same year Rush did. And uh, so I can't remember when I became aware of Rush. I just know that around the age of 10 years old is when I first really started listening to Top 40 Radio. It's when I first really started paying attention to the countdowns, KCK, some Ripties. And also, you know, I grew up right on the, on the U.S.-Canada border, right on the border of the state of Maine. So I listened to American radio as much as I listened to Canadian radio. And I distinctly remember I had a favorite Top 40 radio station that I listened to religiously for years. And I remember I was home on my uh, Christmas break in grade six. So I would have been 11 years old at this point. So this is Christmas 1985. That's significant because normally mom and dad liked us to be to bed fairly early on school nights, you know, and, and I was kind of a, a, an early to bed, early to rise kid anyway. I, I like going to bed early and I, I got up early. So that wasn't a problem, but I liked staying up during the holidays because the station I listened to had a top five most requested songs of the day. They had a little countdown at 11 o'clock every night. And so this particular week that I was home listening, it's uh, the first time I ever heard Rush. I heard the big money. And um, yeah, that's, so that is definitely the first Rush song I ever heard. And, you know, I thought it was cool. I, I, like I was recording songs off of the radio onto blank cassette tapes. I only had a handful of actual cassettes at that point. So uh, it was about another year before my music collection really started. But so that was the first significant thing that happened. And it wasn't too long after that. It, it might have been January, maybe February of 86, that Much Music, which is Canada's equivalent to MTV, it came on the air in 1984, but we didn't get it in our little hometown until that early 1986. And I was changing the channels one night, like literally changing the channels on a rotary dial. I think it was a small little Sears black and white TV that was in my parents' room. And... At that time, there was nothing assigned to Channel 8, and I, and I was click, 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 and there was something on Channel 8, and so I turned it back. And then you have to realize, like, it's really hard to explain this to people that didn't grow up with YouTube and the internet, but the idea of nonstop music videos was unheard of, and I was just so hungry to learn more and more and more and more about, you know, all types of, uh, you know, popular music. Anyway, I put it back on Channel 8, and there was this very strange video. And it had this uh, skeleton with these little tiny skeletons moving inside of it. And it had these, uh, these three guys playing this guy in this massive drum set. And they showed him from the top down. And it, 
And then there was a bass player and a guitar player, and they were all going in circles around each other. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. And then uh, as it drew to a close, a label came on. And of course, it was Mystic Rhythms, but it was much music. And, and I was so excited. We had much music in, in Woodstock, and I was just over the moon about it. And I ran downstairs, and I put a video cassette in the VCR, and I just hit record. It's <laughs> just six hours of whatever. Like, I just couldn't believe we actually had much music. And I have to give the station a lot of credit because I know that if it weren't for much music, I wouldn't have become the Rush fan I became, or at least I wouldn't have become a Rush fan at that age because they were very supportive of Canadian artists, old and new. And, you know, the next year and a half, I saw all kinds of Rush videos and I just gradually realized that I liked this band. They had nothing at all to do with anything else that I listened to. I was a child of the hair metal era, you know, and I still love that stuff, but I liked Rush too. And I couldn't really describe it, why, what it was about them. I just thought their music was so cool. And I didn't think it was particularly different. I just knew I liked it. And I also knew that I didn't know anybody else that liked it. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was literally years before I ever met anyone else that was into Rush, other than a couple of friends of mine who got into Rush because of me. And I've, this story has been told many times before, but I really felt like they were my band. Mm -hmm. like, and I knew that wasn't true because I'd see live videos and obviously they played a big crowds, but I didn't know any of these people. So I saw probably six, seven, eight, nine uh, Rush videos during that period. I would have to say that probably Subdivisions and Distant Early Warning were the ones they played the most. I think those would be the, the most heavily played ones. And then um, in uh, my... 13th birthday, which would have been 1987, uh, was a big event because I got my first dual cassette recorder. <laughs> this, this was a big deal, too, because now I could duplicate other people's cassette tapes and not just have like one separate cassette player up against another and trying to keep it as quiet as I possibly could and having every <laughs> conceivable background noise, you know, in the background right. of the tape. It, it did sound that great, but it was better than that. It was a cleaner recording. And, um, you know, just to make it sound extra old, I remember going to my library, my local library, and they used to rent out cassettes. And um, they didn't have much there that I liked, but they had grace and pressure. So I took that home not too long after that, made a dupe of it. And so I don't consider it my first Rush album, but it was the first Rush album I heard all the way through. And then I remember the first time uh, I owned something by them. I was visiting an, an uncle of mine, and uh, there were a bunch of cassette tapes just down the floor in their rec room and i scooped up about three or four of them and i took them upstairs and i remember asking my uncle i said you know can i borrow these so i could copy them and he said it i never listened to those just you can just have them and one of them was permanent waves and uh and i've said this before it's a weird weird sounding thing but i probably i got it home and i never listened to it for about two months because i didn't know any songs on it and i know that sounds really really strange but if you think about it, there were no videos from Permanent Waves, mm -hmm. which is kind of odd. They did they did little clips from Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres and then everything after, but there's no videos from Permanent Waves. So mm -hmm. when I heard the six songs on Permanent Waves, I heard them all at the same time for the first time. But even before I listened to it, it didn't matter because I had a Rush album. I felt cool because I actually owned a Rush album and it was the first of many. And, and uh, I just started filling in the collection. You know, I was buying tapes, cassette tapes at this point. And unlike most of the other bands I liked that had maybe four or five albums, you know, without the aid of the internet, I just had to keep going until I didn't see anymore. And 
for a while, it seemed like every time I'd go to a record store and look at the rush section, I'd see something I'd never seen before. So I just had to keep buying them until they weren't any more of them. So, uh, you know, I can't remember what, you know, I bought for groceries today, but I can tell you where I was when I bought all of those rush albums. (laughs) Yeah. And you're a collector, obviously in the book, it's obvious that you're a collector of things. So even back then you were like, I got to find out every album by this band. I was a completist from a very, very early age. And so it's a disease that I wouldn't wish on anybody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I liked one album by a band, I said, well, I got to have anything else that they have, too. It wasn't just about the, you know, whatever, what the one song or singles that I liked. I figure I owed it to them to check out what else they had to do. So, yeah, it, it, it really started way, way back. So, Tim, let's talk about the book. What's the genesis of the book Unspooled? Where'd you get the idea and how did it come to fruition? Well. The idea had been sort of germinating for a long time, and really the seed for it was probably planted around 1996, sometime around that. I didn't have access to the internet all the time, but when I did, I was always curious about 8-tracks, and even though I'm old enough to have grown up around them, I didn't necessarily remember seeing a lot of rock 8-tracks, and I was always curious as to when they actually stopped making them because at a certain point you just stopped seeing them in stores and you know everybody started buying cassettes if they weren't buying vinyl. Most people my age bought cassettes. And I found a website called 8trackheaven.com and the site still exists in archive form. It's no longer active, but you can still kind of see what it used to look like. And there was one section of that that I just... It was, a my, it was a game changer. It was called the 80s only, record club only eight tracks. And this is when I realized that, yeah, I was kind of right on my initial guess that it was around 1981, 1982, when eight tracks kind of disappeared from retail stores. But I didn't realize that the record clubs, Columbia House and RCA Music Service, continued making albums on eight track all the way up to 1988. And that blew my mind. And only a collector would get their mind blown by information like that. First of all, why are you even looking at this? But that's me. Uh, I just wanted to know. And then I realized there was this whole subset of 8-track tapes that are just like under the radar, invisible. I, I had no idea how many copies there would have been made. I still don't know. And as the years went on, I discovered more and more albums that I liked that came out in this, this arcane, obscure format that you know, even by the ter- dawn of the 80s had outlived its usefulness. Let's face it. It was a it was a flawed concept. <laughs> right. <from the beginning. laughs> but um, yeah, I, I looked and, and it seemed to me that there were a lot like, you know, country and like mainstream pop superstars. They had a lot of their albums on 8-track. Wasn't a lot of hard rock and metal other than like really, really big bands like ACDC and Van Halen. Uh, and Grace Under Pressure was one that stood up to me, too, um, that, that I for years, I thought that was the last Rush 8 track. So it kind of started then, like I wished that there, I'd always wish that there was a book on this, a book that you could look at and say, okay, these are the eight tracks that we know to exist, that we know actually exist. It was not just hearsay, but somebody thinks they saw one because, you know, that happens a lot. Now, some will say, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that. And they're getting it mixed up with something else. I had to have concrete proof, right? So that little idea was sort of in my head for a long, long time and never really thought much about it. Fast forward to, um, 
I guess the beginning of 2020 with uh, my YouTube channel, Tim's Vinyl Confessions, through doing one of the panels on Rush Bands, which is how I got to know Jerry, uh, I met one of my favorite authors, Martin Popoff. And shortly after doing that show, I thought, well, while it's still fresh in his mind, I'm going to message him and ask him if he wants to be on Tim's Final Confessions while he still remembers who I am. And sure enough, he got back to me and I said, I'd really like to talk to you about 8-tracks because I'm curious to, for someone, and I'll ask you guys the same thing, for people that are older, a little bit older than I am, what do you remember about that transition when all of a sudden they stopped appearing in stores? You know, did people join the record clubs or did they just move on to cassettes or, you know, it was a little bit before CDs. There was that interim period and uh, he was up for it. He came on and we started talking about it and he had no idea that there were these, you know, mid to late eighties, eight tracks. And he said, someone should do a book on this. And I thought if Martin Popoff thinks that there's a book here, <laughs> there must be a book here. It wasn't only that he really helped uh, shape it into what it became, which is not just a book of lists, because that really would have been kind of dry. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted a book of lists. I wanted something people could use as a reference. But it became much, much more than that. There's lots of collecting stories in there. People have been very, very generous with their time and donating their, their skills as writers. And it just slowly came together and morphed into what it is now. So it's not strictly a book about eight tracks a-Track Collecting and the obscure A-Tracks that came out in the 80s, although that is where the main focus of it started with. I think it's a book for anyone that is just into music minutia. And uh, especially if you're in, you know, if you grew up like I did in the 80s or you remember the 80s really well, because it's sort of a trip through the 80s, because the way that I sequenced it, I started in 1981, which is the first year that there seemed to be A-Track tapes uh, that didn't have retail counterparts. Because you can easily spot the difference between something that was released to a retail store as to something that was on Columbia House, something that was on RCA. They had very distinct looks to them. And uh, 1981 was the first year where there seemed to be some eight tracks that didn't seem to have a retail counterpart. And then it went all the way up to 88. So that's eight years. So I said, okay, we'll do a chapter a year. And just like an eight track is split up into four programs, I'll split each chapter up into four sub chapters. And that's what I ended up with. And um, I couldn't be happier with the way it came out. My good friend, Matthew Phillips at Go North Design laid the book out and you've seen it. It looks amazing. I can't take any credit for the way it looks. It looks so professional. I can't believe my name's on the front of it. So many people contributed to make the book what it is. It, it really was a labor of love. A lot of work went into it and it came out. I couldn't have asked for much more, except for the fact that, and what I actually mentioned in the book since you know, it went to print. I've discovered more eight tracks, not many, <laughs> not many, maybe, maybe a dozen or so that, it, that were rumored to exist, but then I've since seen pictures of them. So yeah, that's really how the book came about. Yeah. Eight tracks are definitely an intermediate format, right? You went from, that was the first portable format. You could put it in your car. You could move it around more easily than an album. Absolutely. But like you said, seriously flawed seriously flawed <laughs> yeah especially if you're a stickler for like listening to an album in its intended order or listening to some songs all the way through yeah we had an eight track of american pie okay and i think that it's broken up at least in half it might have been broken up 
into thirds. It was a weird <laughs> listen. Yeah, it's a long song, so yeah. It would just gradually fade out, and then you'd hear that slam, that click, and then it would go back the other way and kind of fade in. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't a very pleasurable experience, truthfully. No, it was it was the portability, like you said, the portability won out. It was the first time that you could put a player, you know, in your vehicle and listen to whatever album you wanted to listen to right when you wanted to listen to it. it it's the portability won out. It was really the precursor to everything portable, uh, the idea of listening to music, you know, in a portable format. But but yeah, you couldn't look at the artwork because half the tape was stuck in the player uh, when, right. you're, when you're listening to it. You know, a lot of times there was no back cover art. There was very, very little information on them. It's a very strange format to get obsessed with. But one thing I like about them, and, and especially those ones later into the 80s, is that they, they seem out of time to me. Like they shouldn't belong. Like eight tracks at compact discs should not have coexisted. Right. But yet they did for a good three, four year period. Like if you were a member of Columbia House, for instance, you at one point you had four formats to choose from. That's insane. You know, I also like in the book, Steve and I have talked about the record club, record yeah. clubs before. And it was definitely like a rite of passage for people who were into music to get the cheapest, <laughs> the cheapest option available, especially when you were burning through albums like that. And it's just amazing to me that the eight track survived for so long only in that small area. Now, why is that? You know, I really don't have an answer to that. And uh, I really, really wanted to find someone who worked at one of these places. I, I wanted to find someone that said, look, talk me through this. Cause I was in Columbia house, like starting in 93, you know, and they only had tapes and CDs at that point. And I kind of know how it works. You fill your card out and you send it in. I wanted someone to talk me through that. It's like, I always had this picture in my mind, you know, someone in 1987 processing these cards and going, somebody wants Michael Jackson bad on a track. That's the third one today. I guess we'll have to run a few off, you know, <laughs> like I, I just, I mean, we're talking small, small, small quantities. And this is for blockbuster, huge selling albums. So right. you can imagine some of these more obscure ones, how double digit quantities, maybe. I just don't know. And, and I don't even know if some of them maybe were in the catalogs and offered, but weren't actually available. Uh, I showed in, in one section of the book some reprints of some Columbia House and, and one RCA music service, you know, the inserts that would come in magazines and comics. And, you know, ones that weren't available on 8-Track would have an asterisk next to them. But if they didn't, that was your clue. Yeah, you could still get it on 8-Track. So even back then, they were picking and choosing which titles were available, which ones weren't. I don't know. There didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. There are some artists who would release like four albums in a row and like say, you know, one, two and four are on 8-Track, but the third one doesn't seem to be. And that doesn't even make any sense. And if, if that was your preferred format, I think it would be aggravating. So, you know, a lot of people would have jumped ship and, you know switch format at this point. What I've learned is that uh, I'm mostly talking about a U.S. Columbia House 388. Uh, the Canadian counterpart of Columbia House, Columbia House Canada, didn't seem to go past 1984. I have yet to see an 8-track past 84 that's Canadian. And again, they're very easy to spot once you know what to look for. I don't know why they decided to keep making them, but I, I bet I know why they stopped because now that they had CDs, <laughs> They just, you know, the, the, to have the facilities to print four formats of an album just didn't make any sense. Yeah. So um, it was a revelation, though, to find out that some of these later 80s albums, you know, coexisted alongside, you know, their cassette and CD and vinyl counterparts. 
I know. It's like finding out that humans and dinosaurs existed at the same time. You know, it's not that much different to find out that, okay, I've got more than I thought that I need to find or try and find out there. Could it be that just Columbia House and RCA were trying to corner the market on people who had A-track players? They wanted to keep getting music. They couldn't buy it in stores. This is the only way they could get A-tracks if they wanted to, right? Well, you know, it's it started out as kind of a cliche, but I've since found out that it's really true. If you were a country music fan in the 1980s, you were well served by those record clubs because, you know, it, the, you'll notice that the year-end list, they start to shrink. And by the time they get to 87, 88, they're very, very small list. A lot of country artists on there because it's kind of the cliche about the pickup trucks, right? With the A-track players. Now I'm not taking that A-track player out. You know, right. some people would get ingenious and get one of those cassette adapters, which I've got a picture of that in one of the <laughs> book, where you lay the cassette down inside the adapter, slam that into the machine. I thought that was pretty high tech when I first saw one of those. You know, that's kind of like the split DVD VCR combos that came out for a while. It's wrestling with that format change. Right. Yeah, I, I, they certainly would have cornered the market because aside from the occasional, you know, Time Life Presents commercial on TV, they'd have those things available, like Sessions Presents, whatever, right? They'd have them available on 8-track. But for new albums coming out, yeah, they, they definitely had the market cornered for what that's worth. And it's also, I had a car that only had a cassette player, so I had the cassette adapter for the the disc man me too yeah i had i had one of those yeah and it would every time you'd hit the slightest bump it would stop stop (laughs) yeah we actually had a friend in the 80s who had an eight track player in his car and the only eight track he owned was kisses rock and roll over (laughs) so that's all we listened to when we were in his car (laughs) yeah that album got a lot of plays sure did yeah, and, and you know, I remember seeing eight tracks like in, by the late '80s. If I saw them anywhere, I'd see them fifty cents each, like you know, unopened. And I shudder to think what I missed out on because I wasn't looking for them. But yeah, you couldn't—they couldn't get rid of them. So let's talk about the Rush albums that were released on eight track and how terrible it was <laughs> that they broke these songs up and put the songs in different order. I mean, it's crazy. The first Rush album. Working Man is in two parts. How can you do that? Hold on. Let me say Working Man is in two parts, but it's also the second song on the album. Yeah. You know, okay. So the the principle is, is that instead of having two sides, like a record or a cassette, eight tracks were broken up into four stereo programs. So that's two channels times four, eight track, I guess, is how they arrived at Mm -hmm. that. And they liked to keep each of those four programs as close in length as possible because if you remember anything about eight tracks, you could fast forward them, but you couldn't rewind them. So if you were looking for a particular song, I forgot about that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, if you, when you switched programs and it would make that loud chunk sound, it would just make an obnoxiously loud sound. Right. You didn't skip to the beginning of the next program. You skipped to the, you know, if you were two and a half minutes into the first program, that's where you ended up on the second program. You'd be in the middle of another song. Right. Um, and, you know, an album like Rush's first album, yeah, you're used to hearing the songs in a particular order. It's not as if they were written to be in a particular order, but it's still weird. The copy that I have of that and the list that I sent you guys, it's a U.S. copy on Mercury. Might have to be signed by the one and only Donna Halper. Oh, wow. Nice. Cool. So, yeah, it goes program one, finding my way, working man, begin, chunk, 
working man conclusion, take a friend in the mood. That's program two. Program three, uh, no more break uh, songs broken up. What you're doing before and after. And uh, program four is need some love and here again. So yeah, they're mixed up. You know, my old Canadian cassette had side one and two flipped. So I yeah. didn't realize that uh, Finding My Way was supposed to be the first song in the album for a long time. Wow. <laughs> well, the, th- the thing with album sequences is that a lot of times they are sequenced a certain way by the artist. Yeah. And Rush were very meticulous about where they placed the songs. Right. And so they sound that way to us because obviously we're used to listening to them. So I would assume maybe if you, your only experience with Rush was this A track, you would be weirded out by the fact that if you listen to the album and it was in a different order. It's what you get used to. It's like, you know, just to go off track just a little bit, when I first get Caress of Steel, like I bought cassettes exclusively when I was getting into Rush. I bought a U.S. cassette. And if you know anything about that, they took Didax and Narpets out of the Fountain <laughs> of Lamneth and put it right after Bastille Day. And they took, I think I'm going bald, yep, and right. put it where Didax and Narpets. I had no idea what the Fountain of Lamneth was until I got archives. I'm like, what is the Fountain of Lamneth? It's just in the valley. I think I'm going bald. No one at the bridge. Made no sense whatsoever. But, you know, when you got cassettes, it was, uh, what do you do? Like, you don't have, I don't have any information. I've just got what's printed on here, which isn't much. I know basically it was produced by Terry Brown. That's about all I know. (laughs) So right away, things get crazy with Fly By Night. This is a Canadian Fly By Night 8 track. It's actually on Mercury because I don't know if people realize a lot of people know Rush have Anthem Records, but Anthem Records didn't exist until 1977. So it is possible to find Canadian versions of the first album all the way through all the world's a stage. They're not very common these days, but it's possible to find Canadian Mercury pressings of all those albums. Mm-hmm. So program one on Fly By Night, Anthem. Okay. Rivendell. Right. Rivendell. Next. <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just slow this ship down a little bit. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Things are getting too hot and heavy here. <laughs> Anthem, let's go right into Rivendell. Rivendell, yeah. Uh, program two is best I can. Beneath, between, behind, making memories. Okay, yeah, okay. That's not bad. Program three, it's taken up by Fly By Night and By Tour and the Snow Dog Begin. Now, I don't know exactly where the fade out is, but I know that it, it fades out. And then program four is By Tour and the Snow Dog Conclusion and In the End. But just with going from Anthem to Rivendell is like musical whiplash. Yeah, I know. It's like just putting (laughs) the brakes on. Yeah. Let me just stop you right there, Tim. Now, (laughs) I read in the book that you don't own an 8-track player. So you've never actually (laughs) listened to Fly By Night on 8-track, correct? Um, I I listened to Fly By Night on 8-track because I used to have one, and I listened to Farewell to Kings. But um, I've lost too many valuable tapes. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to collect these. I'll listen to my CDs and look at my eight tracks. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there are collectors that they'll buy their players. They'll refurbish them. They'll take them apart. They'll oil the capstan. Like, you know, it's high maintenance if you want to listen to these things. They'll take the tapes apart and put new felt pads in them. Like, there's a dedication there that I just don't have in me. I applaud it. But it's high maintenance. So, yeah, I, I used to, but I don't anymore. I just like collecting them. I like having them on my shelf and, you know, and just, you get, you get one to add to the collection. You look at it ah. <laughs> and then you find another one that you're, you know, you're desperate to find. Like Caress of Steel is actually in order. It's actually in its intended order. Lakeside Park is broken up between programs one and two. 
The Necromancers broke up between two and three. And of course, the Fountain of Lamnef is broken up between three and four. But it's the album in its intended order. A lot right. of them are. It's just the song breaks are annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's just breaking a song in half. That's kind of a drag. I mean, and there's no way to do Caress of Steel without fading something in the middle. Right. Yeah. Like, the, you know, you don't, it's not like you've got songs of equal length. 2112 is also in order, but, you know, you mentioned American Pie. So 2112, the song. Okay. So program one is Overture, Temples of Syrinx, and Discovery. Uh, program two is, this one's really hard to read. Presentation, Oracle, the Dream, Soliloquy, Grand Finale, Begin. And uh, program three is Grand <laughs> Finale, Conclusion. Then a passage to Bangkok, Twilight Zone, lessons begin. Uh, then program four is lessons, conclusion, tears, something for nothing. So they're in wow. order, but I, I can just imagine somebody listening to one of those and going, hey, where'd the music? Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing, too, is that it was not a, like a, an instantaneous break from, no. from one program to another. Sometimes it would, it would fade out. And then you'd still have 15, 20 seconds of nothing there because it was just running out the tape until it started up again on the other, on the other program. It was ridiculous. Which is exactly why they tried to keep the programs of equal length. Right. And if you did have 20 seconds left and you just hit the program button, you could be 20 seconds into the next <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> And you couldn't rewind. And then if you no, I love the beginning of that. Well, then you got to fast forward it again. Like the <laughs> strange, strange, strange format. And I, um, you know, when we were getting ready to take you know, those pictures of the book with me, just have tapes strewn all over me. We went to a thrift store and we and we purchased some, you know, some old country and old uh, easy listening tapes, some sacrificial lambs, if you like, so we could just cover myself in the tape. But just or open one of them. There's a lot of tape inside one of those oh, things. Yeah. Especially in the case of something like this, a double live album. Wow. Uh, all the world's the stage. Um, and this this one's in order too. It breaks up Lakeside Park, and that's actually the only break on here. That's actually the only break on All the World's a Stage. Not bad. Not bad. Live albums, they tended to leave alone because it's kind of hard to break those up, right? Because there's no real silences, right? Yeah. Now, was All the World's a Stage two eight tracks, Tim, or just one? No, nope, just, just one. Really? Just one. Yeah. Some of these were, some of them weren't. I think, you know, depending on where you get it, whether it was a club version or not, because I know that, um, for instance, Kiss Alive 2, the version I have is a Canadian version. It's on one tape, but an RCA music service tape from the States is broken up in two tapes. Hmm. But if you hold, like if you hold, say, a, a double live album into to a regular studio, you feel a difference. There's like twice as much tape inside of it. Yeah. A live album. I would assume they would just make it thinner. Like when you bought cassette tapes that were like 120 minutes instead of 90, the tape was so thin and so easily breakable. Very much. You know, these long, long tapes, they would stretch them so far. And, and the thing is, the way that they worked, like you take the, the thickness of, of the tape that's inside, which is about, I don't know how, how thick that is, I mean, like half a centimeter, not very thin, maybe an eighth of an inch. And each quarter of that eighth of an inch is a song. So mm -hmm. when you hit the program button, it would go like this, and then it would go like this, and go like this. <laughs> so it's little wonder that as you play a tape over and over again, you'd get crosstalk, you'd hear two songs at the same time. Yep. You get the corresponding song on the next program. There's a lot of breaks, breakups on A Farewell to Kings, as you could probably imagine. Yeah. Um, so Xanadu split between program one and two. And because that happened, that pushes closer to the heart where that has to be split up, the slowest, as short a song as that is. Are you serious? 
Yeah, program two is Santa do conclusion closer to the heart begin. No complete song. Um, <laughs> and then there's closer to the heart conclusion, Cinderella man, madrigal, and Cygnus X one begin. And then all of program four <laughs> is the second half of Cygnus X one. Oh my God. It, it's pretty crazy. See, I don't see, they could have, I don't know how they could have done that. Well, they couldn't have done it differently without disrupting the song order that's for sure i wonder if someone at some point was just like listen the song order order is more important than breaking up a three-minute song into two pieces absolutely and, but usually then what you have like i've got uh, one uh, and i've got a picture of it in the book it's robert plant pictures at 11 where it says not all of the programs are of equal length to allow for song sequencing or something like that so they they did it but they had to put a disclaimer and then every once in a while you'd get lucky and you'd get a song that was split up between two programs but hey, they've got room at the end of the, the program four for another song. So they repeat a song and then you get the song whole. <laughs> so it was less about how long the album was and more about the songs being equal length. Yeah, programs needed to be equal length. Yeah. So do you think there were any bands out there that actually recorded songs with eight tracks in mind to try and keep them equal length so the, they didn't get no, broken I'm up? Saying, I'm saying no. <laughs> Probably, I probably not. I think it was kind of, I think mostly they heard with vinyl in mind because even, you know, even after the CD age came out, the, the guys in rush would still talk about the song that closed side one and the song that mm -hmm. opened side two. They really right. took a lot of time into that. I don't know. Like maybe there might be some indie bands that, you know, they wanted them as equal as possible. I don't know. It's a good question. I do have an answer to your question. I do have one here that's on two tapes. Of course, it's archives. Yeah. But this one's weird because this first tape is just Rush and Fly by Night, and this is just Caress of Steel. Huh. Whereas I think in Canada, they did the same thing with the cassettes, but in Canada, they split Fly by Night up so that it became more of a, you know, evenly balanced. Hemispheres, hemispheres. Well, hemispheres takes up all of program one and two. So hemispheres, program one is Prelude, Apollo, Dionysus. Program two is Armageddon, Cygnus, and the Sphere. Program three, Circumstances, The Trees, La Villa Strangato, Beginning, and then La Villa Strangato, Conclusion on program four. And yet each of these programs says they're each 9.05. So somehow they managed to squeeze those into, you know, equal. Uh, permanent Waves isn't bad. Uh, permanent Waves, there's only one split, and it's free will is split between program <laughs> Free <one>. will? <laughs> you just Not Jacob's Jerry. Ladder? <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. And natural science takes up all of program four. Well, at least, I mean, that's good. Free will. How do you break a free? I want, I really want to hear where they break free will. I don't know. I don't have it. I don't have oh the, my God. That. you know, it, it was, it's probably something stupid. Like do, 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 do. Right. It <laughs> <laughs> just kind of fades out right before the solos begin. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I like to think that they faded it out so that there was a little bit of overlap. So you didn't actually lose any of the song. But I don't I don't know. Uh, moving pictures, they start doing some strange things. Moving pictures programs one, two and four are 10, 11 long. But program three is 10, 07. So uh, program one is Tom Sawyer, Witch Hunt, YYZ Begin. Program two is YYZ continued i guess it says and red barchetta all of program three is the camera eye oh no it's like well, the part of it anyway program four is the camera eye continued limelight and vital signs very strange track 
I mean, moving pictures is one you really want to hear those songs. In yeah. Battle. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> this might be the most egregious out of all of them. Yeah. Just from an aesthetic standpoint as a fan to have to go from Tom Sawyer to Witch Hunt. It's weird. Yeah. Uh, Exit Stage Left is pretty good. Um, the programs are all of there. Are, okay. Yeah. Nope. There are time gaps between programs. So they're not of equal length, but there's no songs split up and they're all in order. So that's, you know, points for that. Okay. Now we're getting to Signals, which is the last retail eight track made. So the one I've got is a US Mercury retail eight track. The only things that are mixed up on here is that chemistry and the analog kit are flipped. So program one is subdivisions and chemistry, and program two is the analog kit and digital man. It, it just, it must have been to get the programs a little bit more equal, yet they're not completely equal. Because the difference, I'm looking at the albums right now, the difference in time between the analog kit and chemistry is 10 seconds. See, yeah, they might as well have left it alone. I don't know why they did that. That is such a strange, just to, just to save 10 seconds, I can't imagine that that was a good decision on anyone's part. I can't imagine subdivisions not followed by the analog kid. I know. If you were to burn yourself CDs of these, you'd get really annoyed. Because it's like, <laughs> right. Right. And the last one I have is one of the more pricey ones. It's a Canadian Grace Under Pressure. Uh, oh, wow. Which is, yeah. I mean, that, again, once you get into 1984 and you're looking at these and you're like, I can't believe this exists. This one is, they did the, a very similar thing. The only things that they flipped were red lenses and kit gloves. So program three is the body electric red lenses. And then program four is kit gloves and between the wheels, which again, I, they might as well have just left. Them. I don't know how long the programs are on this one. They don't say. And then, you know, for years, like I said, I thought that was the last Rush album to maybe on eight track. But four years ago, I discovered that there is a U.S. RCA music service version of Power Windows. And I do not have it. I'm on the Discogs page right now to get the track listing. There are pictures of it on here. It's got 63 people have it on their want list. And I'm not even one of those because <laughs> what's the point? Right. So uh, this one is weird. Uh, it's program one, Big Money, Mystic Rhythms. We could just stop right there, right? Mystic Rhythms as the second song. Yeah. Here's what they did. They took Mystic Rhythms and put it after the Big Money and then everything else gets pushed down. Yeah. Because after that, they're in order. So program two is grand. No, sorry. That's not even right. That's not even right. Program two is Grand Designs and Marathon. Program three is Territories, Manhattan Project. And program four is Middletown Dreams. An emotion detector. So, yeah, really weird. Um, That's a really weird one. Really weird. But, you know, I Rush more than I think any other band or one that's interesting to talk about those track lists because we know the order that those songs are supposed to be in their intended song order. And sometimes this, it's just crimes against nature that they're, they're <laughs> mangled up. Bad. You know, another thing about the music fading out, I'm not up on my Pink Floyd, but I do know that they're. I think there's at least a couple of Pink Floyd albums that the eight track versions actually have seconds worth of music that didn't appear in any other format. And I'm not sure why that is. I know Animals is one of them. Maybe Wish You Were Here is the other one. I'm not sure. I know Animals is one of them. There's like extra bit of music. Uh, someone out there I'm sure knows about that. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird format. Why I'm so enchanted by it and, and took the time to write a book about it. Look, I have no idea, guys. <laughs> I, I do know that it's, it's been a lot of fun, and I like how it came out. And, uh, 
yeah, I, if anybody out there's going to power a Windows 8 track, <laughs> I'm certainly looking for one. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy to think about those later albums existing in this format and how anybody would derive enjoyment from driving around listening to these songs all out of order. But again, like you said, if you know you were a member of this club and, and, and an album came out, you got it and you listened to it a lot. And let's say then you get the CD or the cassette and you listen to it and you go, well, this is out of order. Right. It's what you get used to. Yeah. So you mentioned you don't have power windows. Is there a holy grail of eight track tapes, something that you're searching for that you've never found? That's definitely one of them. You know, basically it's, you know, I want to get my favorite bands. If I can, I want to get all of the, you know, when I like a band, I like to get all their albums in as many of the formats as I can find them. So I have a few collections that I would call complete. Uh, then I have a few collections that I would call complete retail. And then I have the subsection called uh, complete retail plus, which means I've got all the retail ones and I've got one of the RCOs or record club only, but I'm still missing a couple. Yeah. Power windows is way, way up there on that list. I'd love to find uh, queen the works. That's a very rare one. I'd love, I, I'm looking for a Van Halen 5150. Um, you know, one of the very last known eight tracks ever made was Journey's Greatest Hits, which came out November 15th, 1988. That exists on eight track. And I'd like to have it because I have all of the other ones. Yeah, there's a few of them. And the weird thing is, is that it is such a niche market, but people that are looking for these things and people that actually have them they're getting so that they know what they have and they know they have something that they can make some money off of, which there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, my sort of uh, dream scenario, I always hear people talking about coming across estate sales. I've never come across an estate sale and I'd love to find some house that's been vacant for X amount of years. And someone's just got a case of these RCOA tracks just sitting and someone is selling them for a buck each. <laughs> right. That would be very, very cool for me to, to come across. Well, I have go to estate sales a lot and I have definitely seen a tracks all over the place. I've never even bothered looking at them, but I guess I will now to see if there's a power of windows in there that I could send you. But you know what else I always see? You know, obviously if, if someone has eight tracks, they have an eight track player. Now who knows if the player actually works. Right. So, right. Let's put it this way. If you, if you have a, an eight track player and you're fortunate enough to find yourself an eight track of power windows, my advice to you, don't just put it in the player. Make sure everything's working. Or, because the last thing you want is to have, you know, that tape spaghetti everywhere with a very expensive tape. Right. Because I think they wound, you know, that's eventually what, what did that format in. They wound up more than they actually played. You spent more time trying to respool them yeah. than, you know, and they're not the easiest things to take apart. And it, it, what's crazy is that every record label had a slightly different mold for them. Some had exposed screws, which are easy enough to get at. Some didn't. And some you had to be careful. You didn't snap them, you know, into too many pieces and have to glue them back together. And like I said, it's a lot of work. Um, my big concern is if I see one and it's in decent shape and, and you know, the cover doesn't have, uh, it's not all modeled with, you know, sun damage and things like that, then uh, I'll pick it up and add it to the collection. Or even if it is, if it's a particularly rare tape i'll get it and that'll become like a, a placeholder until i find a better copy of it you know well again the book is called unspooled tim why don't you tell us where we can get this book if rush fans want to purchase it 
Oh, yeah. I should also mention our mutual friend, Ryan Murphy from Rush Fans. He contributes a piece to this. So, yeah, there is a, oh, nice. there is a Rush section in here. Donna Halper wrote the back cover blurb. You know, you, you can tell uh, within looking this, uh, yeah, the guy that wrote this is obviously a Rush fan. <laughs> so I'm just selling it myself. And people have me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram message me or uh, send me an email, timsvinylconfessions at gmail.com. I ship worldwide. And uh, PayPal is my preferred way to, to pay. And um, as of this filming, the books are ready to ship out. So. You know, I, I thank everybody that's uh, supported so far, and it's been it's been quite an adventure. And how about your YouTube channel, Tim's Vinyl Confessions? What can we hear on the latest episodes? Uh, so my um, YouTube channel, I've I've had since 2014. I try to post an episode a week, and I usually try to do it on one band. And I have playlists by bands. If you type in Tim's Vinyl Confession Rush, you'll see a lot of episodes because. There's a lot to talk about. I've, you know, I've go through, gone through their vinyl. I've gone through all the cassettes. I've gone through all the CDs and, and the DVDs and things like even, uh, even talked about the books a little bit. And um, what have I got coming up? I've actually got a, something very, very special coming up that will be of interest to Rush fans because of a project that's coming up. And I don't want to give it away, but he is a former guest of yours. You've talked to him, a uh, Canadian musician. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, I've got a best of 1977 episode coming up at the end of the month. You might ascertain that a farewell to Kings is going to be up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, me and, and uh, two other buddies uh, count down our top 10 albums from that year. And yeah, just try to, I like to do road trip episodes when I make a road trip. Uh, if a new album comes up that I review, I talk about those. I, I well, it's been a while, but I get to a concert, I'll do a little concert review. It's just, you know, sharing my love with the, the bands that I love. And, uh, you know, Unspooled in some ways is an extension of that channel. So it all kind of goes together. Well, as you said, Tim, it's a beautiful book, Unspooled, an adventure in eight tracks. Tim Darling, thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. So, Jared, my parents had an eight-track player in our house in the 70s. We had one, too. I did not own any eight track tapes whatsoever, but my parents did. Yeah. So did mine. They were terrible. As I said, they were, they were terrible. I hated them, <laughs> but it's interesting though, right? It is an interesting, the eight tracks are kind of like the, the thing that is invented, but never gets out to market mm-hmm. because it's quickly overtaken by the next development. I don't know how eight tracks got so popular when the cassette was right around the corner. Right. But there are a lot of people, I think that get entrenched in one particular type of format. Yes. You know, if you back in the seventies, if you spent the, who knows how much three or $400 it might've been for an eight track player, right. You wanted to keep getting those eight track tapes. If you collected hundreds of eight track tapes, you had an eight track player when 1980 rolled around, you wanted to keep getting eight tracks, right? Yeah. And the one thing we didn't talk about, which, I don't even know if it's relevant at all. It's sort of like the war between beta and VHS. Oh yeah. Beta beta had the better sound quality and picture quality, but somehow VHS won out. I wonder if there was any advantage to an eight track. Did it sound better? Was the tape? I mean, as Tim said, the tape would often get stuck. So maybe the, the tape wasn't of good quality either. I'm just curious how it got so popular. I don't know, but, Betamax 
apparently was a better format than VHS. Right. But I think it was just cheaper to produce VHS and it kind of just won out. My brother had a Betamax machine for years, years till like the mid eighties. Right. And he would tape stuff on his Betamax machine and buy as many Betamax tapes as he could, but you know, they slowly and slowly disappeared. Yeah. And the one thing we didn't mention, cause we couldn't go through all of the great stuff that's in Tim's book, but people are still putting out a tracks. Yeah. St. Vincent is putting out a tracks of her albums. All of her albums so far, he says have been on a track, which is mind boggling. You might as well put them out on, you know, like, like shellac or something. I don't know what you, what's the analogous format, but who is what, what hipster is buying St. Vincent albums on a track? Well, somebody has got to have an a track player out there that still works and they still use. I'm telling you, I go into estate sales. I'm going to buy the next a track player I see, and I'm going to see how much I can get for it. All right. Can't wait to hear about it. Oh yeah. I'll let you know. You can find us on Twitter. We are at rush Fancast. Instagram. Find us at the Rushcast. If you have any eight track tapes to sell, Jerry wants to buy them. The Rushcast at gmail.com. You were going to say something, Jerry? I was going to say Tim might want to buy them. <laughs> I'm not buying any eight tracks. <laughs> Follow or subscribe on Podbean. That's our host, Jerry. We always forget to mention them. Podbean is our host. Do, do we? I, well, I always forget. Or anywhere you find your podcast. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jerry. Waiting for your quote. It's going to be a good one. I know it. Yeah, it's from Turn the Page. Oh, nice. Nothing can survive in a vacuum. No one can exist all alone. We pretend things only happen to strangers. We've all got problems of our own. We sure do. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Jer. See you later.